Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, in the studio today with Coach Trevor Connor and Coach Ryan Kohler. Today we're going to talk about a big old topic, summarize a lot of things that we've been preaching on the show. Preaching? That's a strong word, but discussing on the show for quite some time. It's a underlying philosophy, really, to a lot of the things that we do and talk about on the show. We get a lot of specific questions about a lot of interesting topics, and we want those questions to continue. However, it got us thinking that some people might be thinking that these very specific things are the silver bullet that's going to solve all their problems or fix all of their issues or get them to achieve that next level. We kind of want to take a step back and talk about the bigger picture, the the nine, if that silver bullet is the 5%, we want to step back and talk about the fundamentals, the 95%, the bulk, the major bulk of what people should be focusing on in their training, in their nutrition, in the way that they think about themselves as an athlete. Because we're talking mostly here to amateur athletes and not pros. And we're going to get into some of the distinction there, some of the reason why I actually even bring that up early on in the program. Hey there, listeners. I'm Ryan Kohler, head coach and physiologist of Fast Talk Laboratories. As part of my role, I spend time answering your questions on our forum. So I'm excited to announce our new forum member level. Our new forum membership unlocks full access to the Fast Talk Labs forum at an affordable price. You'll get access to all our active topics like training concepts, physiology, workout lab, nutrition, races, rides, and runs, and more. Our forum gives you the chance to get answers to your questions from our community and from our coaches, experts, and Fast Talk guests. Forum members also get access to 40 of Dr. Steven Seiler's lectures, webinars, and interviews, plus our searchable podcast episode transcripts. So join the conversation. Sign up at FastTalkLabs.com. Join our forum member level by March 14th, and you can try it out free for two weeks. Just use the discount code PODCAST during checkout. See you on the forum. Trevor, did you have some opening remarks you'd like to make as we set the stage for this discussion? Yeah, we haven't done a summary episode in a while, so we decided it was time. And this is where we kind of look back on the questions we've been getting, the episodes we've been doing, and say, hey, is there a theme here that we really want to focus on? And realized this is one that we've been talking about, particularly in a lot of the, the comments we've been getting, the questions we've been getting and felt it was a good thing to dive deeper into. Ryan, I know that you have worked with athletes of all levels, and I'm sure that this is an interesting topic for you to consider given the a lot of the things that you've probably seen at the Performance Center where people will come in and they'll be like, yeah, I just read this new study or I read this website or blog or whatever it is about a supplement or a thing that is quote-unquote going to take them to that next level and you've you probably have had this conversation a lot. All those things that come out are, you know, they're new and cool and exciting. And the stuff that uh, I find myself, you know, preaching, I guess to use the same word, is it's not as exciting. might be a little boring, not as sexy and cool as all the, uh, you know, supplements and these little tricks that come out. But yeah, we always have to take that step back. We live in an era of marginal gains, I think this has become a very popular term. I, I think of Team Sky 
So, Chris, you were saying that was really Dave Brailsford. Yeah, Dave Brailsford Brailsford was the – he certainly isn't the first person to use the term marginal gains. In fact, I Googled that and the origin story of that, and I found everything from chess experts in the – I think it was the late 1800s who were using the term marginal gains all the way back to uh, Japanese philosophy from, you know, long, long ago. I don't know what dynasty, but we're talking long ago when that was sort of a, a concept of these these very small, uh, seemingly insignificant things you could do that cumulatively would add up to a significant effect. Dave Brailsford was the one that essentially came along as, as general manager of Team Sky and said, we're going to apply that to a cycling uh, atmosphere. We're going to bring mattresses to the Tour de France. We're going to, you know, so that people will sleep that just that little bit better. We're going to do things with when it comes to nutrition, equipment, physiology, testing, whatever the case may be. And each of those adds a half a percent maybe, or maybe less than that. And they at, will add up to 2%, 3% on the top end of an, a, an athlete at that level, which at that level, as we know, is something and can make the difference between first at the tour and pack fodder at the tour. What they, they, they like to say is at the tour, the difference between the winner and Lantern Rouge is 5%. Right, exactly. It's a small difference. So if you can find these little things that make a quarter of a percent difference here, a quarter of a percent difference there, the, the theory is we're all kind of coming in on on same footing. So if you can find these little things that's going to win the race. And what we're going to really hope to convince you of today is when you're a Team Sky, or not Team Sky anymore. Yeah, Ineos Grenadiers or any of these World Tour teams, exactly. That approach is probably pretty effective. But for us average Joes, for most of us, uh, the case we're going to make is I actually think that can sometimes hurt you. Yeah, exactly. And and I would say that what you will gain by focusing on that 5% is at most 5%. But if you focus on the 95%, frankly, you're going to get a much bigger return or potentially get a much bigger return for all of the investment of time and energy that you've put into those activities on and off the bike. So we just recorded the episode about time trialing, which was a fun episode. While we were getting ready for it, I read a study that just came out that I mentioned in that episode, but wanted to bring over to this episode because it is a really good analogy of what we're talking about. So this was a study called, sure enough, Less is More. Cyclists, triathletes, 30-minute cycling time trial performance is impaired with multiple feedback compared to a single feedback. So let me just give you the story of this study. They, they, and there's a, I have a few issues with these studies, but I think for what we're talking about today, this study is fantastic. So they used experienced triathletes and cyclists who, who focus on time trialing. They didn't use elite. They didn't use best in the world, but they, they used experienced athletes. And they had every one of these athletes perform two 30-minute time trials. So you were going for distance. In uh, one of the tests, all they'd be able to see is time. So they'd know how much time is left in the time trial. 
In the other test, they would see multiple metrics. They would see time, distance, power, cadence, heart rate. Um, I think that was they all were of them. facing a barrage of data is right. what you're saying. <laughs> Basically. Seeing all the data that a lot of people are going to have on their bike computer when they're sitting there in a time trial. Right. Going, I need all this data because it's going to help me. Right. Here is what was jaw-dropping about that study. When they took the time trial where they only had a single metric, the average wattage, so group wattage, was about 287.9 watts, so plus or minus. Mm-hmm. When they had multiple metrics? Same people. Same people. And this was only like a week or two apart, so there's no... Uh, there's no performance gains or fitness gains, anything else like that. When they have multiple metrics, average wattage was 227.9 watts. It's a massive difference. So having multiple metrics, 60-watt drop. Yeah, that's that's amazing to hear. So this study, now here you get at the bias of of the people who wrote this study. It actually was published in Frontiers in Psychology. Mm Mm-hmm. And they did a lot, I'm not going to go into all the details, but they did a lot in the study to try to prove that it wasn't because they came into one of the tests fatigued, uh, that it wasn't a motivational thing, and actually did some creative ways to figure all that out. It was truly just having the multiple metrics. And their explanation for it is they talked about cognitive load. Mm -hmm. And there has been a lot of research showing that when you have too much cognitive load, which fatigues your brain, that can actually cause you to perform worse. It leads to general fatigue. So we did an episode on this a long time ago talking about is fatigue in the muscles or is it more central? And there is this whole central governor theory. And so they're leaning into this basically saying you are causing mental fatigue, which your body doesn't fully differentiate as just general fatigue. And it slows you down. And one of the things I did notice in the study is in the when they were doing it with multiple metrics, as they were getting further and further into the time trial and getting tired, they would stop looking at the the numbers. They actually had a whole headgear hooked up to, to so they could watch or see what each athlete mm. was looking at. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this sounds like a tangent, but the reason I think this is so relevant is. When you're talking about those extra 5%, that's all these extra things to look at instead of just focusing on the performance. It's a bit of clutter, you might say. And this little thing here, this little thing there might gain you 0.1%. Another might gain you 0.2%. So if you stick with this analogy of wattage, all these little 5% things that you read about might gain you 10 watts, but they're costing you 60. Mm Mm-hmm. So the net is a loss. The net is a big loss. Yeah. And that's, I hope, the case that we're going to make today of why actually focusing on this 5% might actually not not only not help you, it might actually hurt you. Mm -hmm. It's going to distract you. It's going to fatigue you. We are all, for most of us, are not pros. So we have families, we have jobs, we have limited bandwidth, we have limited energy. So it's a question of where do you want to focus it? And do you want to focus on putting a lot of energy into something that's just a little gain or focus on the big things that are a big gain? Yeah. This makes me think of the 
maybe the junior context a little bit, Ryan, I would assume that you're you're not encouraging the junior athletes you work with to focus too much on the data, just to go out and ride. Maybe there's a head unit, but don't have a lot of data up on it when they're training or racing. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, a lot of them are trying to get the data. They want it because that's what you do, right? Everybody's got it. But yeah, that's um, with juniors. I, I try to get them to tune into the the effort and just get to know their bodies. And that was one thing that stood out from this study was that it immediately made me think of how we can find that flow state when we're riding. And if we think about a time trial, you just get into that flow state, everything else is tuned out and you just have you, the bike and your body, you know, and you're just riding. And, um, when we start throwing all that data, it seems like every time we look at the computer, look at a different piece of data, it sort of pops us out of that. Just and distracts us. Yeah. yeah. Throws us out of the element. Get yeah. Up. Yep. Yeah. So I think taking that, yeah, applying that with juniors. Yeah. I try to just not have them, yeah, focus on the numbers as much, use them secondary, but get them to tune in more with that, that effort and, you know, learn your body. Okay. So let's ask one question that might be on a lot of people's minds. If the 5% is what you say it is, and it's kind of fatiguing us and it, and it might actually hurt us. Why do the pros put so much emphasis on this, Trevor? There are a lot of things that are different about pros from us. And it's really important to understand this when you're reading an article and hearing this pro does this or this pro does that. The first one is most pros have 10 plus years of training in their legs. And most of that time was spent focusing on that 95%, the big things. By the time they get to that top level, by the time they're at the Olympics or the Tour de France, they've really peaked out their fitness, their strength, their their race experience. So... That's where if they want a little more, they have to focus on the 5%. But I think if you talk to any pro, and we've asked a few pros this question, they will tell you first they had to build the fitness. As a matter of fact, in that time trial episode, we talked a little bit about that with Kristen Armstrong. You know, she kind of went, well, yeah, the, you know, the, the, the strength is there. You, you could see kind of her mindset of, yeah, that, that's all been figured out. So she was very focused on what are the little things I can do to beat my opponents. But mm -hmm. underlying all that was decades of getting to be the best. Yeah, you have to build the engine before you can then kind of put the new fancy chip in the car to make it go just a little bit faster or work on this, tune up the suspension to make it go a little bit faster. I know some people out there hate the car analogies, but I feel like this is kind of apt, like the the foundation has to be there or the engine has to be solid before you can modify it to tune it up to make it just that little bit better and she spent many many years as most if not all pros do in that in that method of just building and building and building building the 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 base the foundation to then attach a little bit of this yeah extra stuff to it. So if people don't like the car analogy to go with a good example, another example using that, that talking with Kristen, that's actually what really struck me was she talked about her strategy. So they went, well, yeah, that, that's a cool strategy. I'm just sitting there thinking 99.9% .9 of riders, if they did that, sure, they would get that <laughs> 20 second gap, completely blow up and finish five minutes down. Right, right. Inherent in all this is you have the fitness. Yeah. We actually spoke with Kristen Armstrong and her coach, Jim Miller, quite a while back, but that episode will run next week, episode 154.
Let's hear again from three-time Olympic gold medalist Kristen Armstrong about how she strategized against her opponents, even in a time trial. Just bear in mind, she had to get awfully strong before she could be thinking this way. We approached every race with a different tactic. So I remember in 2015 when I made a comeback, I hadn't raced since 2000, since London. And um, basically we went, we ended up at nationals and the, the tactic at nationals was two laps. And this tactic this time around was these girls haven't seen you race for several years. And our goal is on lap one is we're going to mentally get in their heads. We, you are going to go out as hard as you can for lap one. And you're just going to hang on for dear life and stop two and hope we're just going to pray you make it. But we think that people will get time checks because it's a, it's an exact two laps that a lap one, when they're seeing that they're down by 20 seconds, they're going to freak out because they hadn't seen me for years. And so it worked. I won. So another important thing to remember with pros is yes, they, they work in that 5%, but it's not really them. They have managers, they have nutritionists, they have mechanics who are the ones figuring out that 5%. And really the pros are generally just being told, do this, ride that. I'm still going to say most of the time the pros are just focused on, let's get the training done. Yeah, this one, we just talked about this in one of our nutrition webinars, you know, where uh, I think we used the example of when I was crewing for a guy doing Western States and he, you know, he was competing for a top spot. He was competing for the win and, and he had his whole team around him. And I remember, you know, my job was to handle his nutrition and the whole time, all he had to do was run. And every time he got to a, a support, you know, or aid station, you know, I had his nutrition, we would communicate on what he needed and then he would just continue to run. But all of that planning was done. You know, we worked together on it beforehand, but once he was in the event, like that was it. He just ran and all the, all the mental energy spent on nutrition, that was my job. So it was, yeah, he didn't have to think about it. Yeah. If we could only all have that luxury of just sitting back, doing our workout and then having people bring us food and, you know, wipe us down with towels and have this one year there to, to uh, do the massage. It's been a bit since we've heard from many-time guests on the show and pro cyclists with Team Bike Exchange, Brent Bookwalter. But of all the guests we've had on the show, there's no one who's pushed more for this whole idea of balance. Brent talks about how they, as pros, really do get taken care of and don't have to worry about so much but then goes into the fact that if you have a family and, and a job, it's a different story. So let's hear what he has to say. We are at the, at the highest level of the sport in the world tour. Most of us have incredible access to resources and support. And we do go through periods of our seasons where we are babied and nurtured and taken care of. And, you know, every minute of every day is outlined for us and it's just plug and play. We show up and get after it. Someone looks after us every step of the way. On the opposite side of that is since those days and those periods are so looked after and so micromanaged and so far removed from, quote, normal life, that sort of normal life um, outside of the sport and outside of competition does get neglected. And that requires a need and attention and a, a deserved focus when, it, when we come back to that, that is maybe you know even higher than if we had been just sort of in and out of that 
through a whole week or through a whole month or through a whole year. So no matter who you are, it's important to define that balance is a maybe elusive elusive goal or, or dream, but balance of family and balance with other work, balance with some travel and uh, just keeping that sort of a holistic, all-encompassing outlook on, on everything that is, is part of life. I still remember my first couple years doing the whole NRC circuit in the U.S., I would tend to go solo. So I had to take care of my own registration. I had to take care of my own food. I had to do all my prep. I had to take care of all these things. And it was fatiguing. And I remember when I had a year racing on a team, it, it was great, but it was almost confusing, just almost boring. What do I do? I, that's exactly it. I'd go to the race and I'd be like, wait, I don't have to run around and do this and do that. I don't have to go to the grocery store, pick this up. I don't have to prepare that. I'm like, wow. A, this is so much easier and I have so much more energy. But it was exactly that. It was like, it's kind of boring. <laughs> this is why, um, as a, a slight tangent, as a journalist, you go to races, uh, big races, and uh, good luck if you're trying to use the Wi-Fi because every athlete in the hotel is watching movies with their feet up because they have nothing to do. Yeah. Quote, unquote, nothing to do. They're preparing for their race and they're sucking up all the Wi-Fi <laughs> and journalists can't get any work done. Um, in, a, in an ideal situation, yeah, that's exactly what you should do to prepare for a race. Relax. I still notice this when I go to Tobago. So I'll, I'll, that's a, a UCI race. So you have to be on a team. So I always find a team to ride with. And you just see the, the, the difference. Like we finish the stage. I hop in the, the ocean really quick enjoy some water, then I'm quickly grabbing my computer. I'm going over by the pool where they've got good Wi-Fi and spending the rest of the day working and then have to come back, get ready for the next day's race and everything. But I'd watch my teammates. They get back from the race. They'll hop in the water with me. Then they go and quite literally just lie in bed for eight hours, mm -hmm. close the curtains, keep the room dark, and that is their day. Yeah. It, it is boring life <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you can do it, right? And that's, you know, going back to the junior point, that's mm -hmm. another thing that juniors need to be taught. You know, we would get done, I mean, using mountain bike nationals as an example, that's a, that's a good one where we would go out and ride the course and then, you know, it's not a challenging ride, but we'd get back to the house and, you know, they want to go, you know, they're running around they want to go ride the bikes more and do all this stuff. And, and, but you have to get them to say, no, no, this is where you just get bored, get a book, hang out and just a put your feet book. up. Whatever. What is whatever book? a book is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or they can get their, their e-reader, whatever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, just tell them to be bored for a little while and sit around and, and that's your recovery. Take a nap, whatever, you know, and, and so they need to learn that too. Yeah, the, the other point I will make about pros is, remember, this is all they focus on. So using that example, those athletes that I ride with at Tobago, they, they do focus a little bit on those 5%. But we finish the stage at 1 o'clock. From 1 o'clock until they go to bed, they're going to put a little time into their bike. They might put a little time into a few other things. But all that adds up to two hours. They got nothing else to do. That's easy. Mm-hmm. I didn't do as many of these things as they would do because, like I said, I had to quickly hop in the ocean then go try to get eight hours of work in. 
and then come back and at 10 o'clock at night when they're all sleeping, I'm trying to clean off my bike, get it ready for the next stage and everything else. And you'd always see by the final day of the, the race, they're all still fresh and ready to go. And, and I'm tired. Mm-hmm. So in summary, yes, pros do focus on the 5%. But they have the luxury to do so. They have the luxury and they have a whole team of people that are doing a lot of it for them. So really important to remember that is different. And if you don't have that team, if you have a life, you have a job, you have a family, that's going to wear on you. It's interesting too. We talk about this as if it's the realm of where the the pros live in this 5%. They're looking for these these little things, these little tweaks to help them along the way. But but honestly, and kind of in conflict with what we've just said, a lot of these things – uh, might hatch in the pro world and pros might try them and then they'll kind of move on and it's the amateurs that are trying to do what the pros do or, th- or do what they think the pros are doing that latch onto these things and are like, oh, I must do that. I, I think it would be cool to walk through a few examples of the things that people, I, I think they have this notion that pros are doing it, but they're actually not and we've been able to to hear from them that they're not. So let's walk through some, Trevor. Yeah, and I think that's the really important point is I think there's a lot of belief in these 5% things that pros really focus on. And, and at least our conversation with the pros, they're always like, I don't know. I've heard about that. I don't, I don't do it. Right, right. So that's a bit of what motivated this episode was there were, we've done a couple recent episodes on things that are considered part of that 5%. And we're quite surprised when we talk to people at very high level, their response is, yeah, not really. Right. So I think the first one that we keep hearing about that we get a lot of questions about is the whole fasting, training fasted and and keto. And I really like that we just recently had Dr. Eukendrup, who's done some of this, you know, the original research on fasted training. Mm -hmm. At the end of it, you asked him, uh, so how do you apply with this with your athletes? And his response was, I really don't. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty lukewarm response uh, when it came to the the different protocols or methods that we we walked through in that episode. He does some of this, but it's not a major focus. You know, I think if you were to really pinpoint what they do, it's when it comes to nutrition, it's just solid, fundamental nutritional um, practice. And this other stuff is maybe a little bit here, a little bit there. Maybe it's in the base season a little bit. And if it's not for a particular athlete, just skip it. Don't do it. We just talked about how renowned sports nutritionist and researcher Dr. Eukendrup doesn't really employ fasting approaches with his athletes, even though he did some of the research around it. Let's hear what he has to say. What is clear is that whatever diet you give to humans, they, they will adapt to it. Some diets you adapt very quickly. Some diets, like a high-fat diet, it takes a little bit longer to uh, to really adapt to it. But ultimately, you you will adapt to it, and you will be able to do similar types of things with a completely different fuel mix. That that's a fact. Now, if we if we then uh, look at like performance, then there are some things of physiology that do not change, whether you're adapted or not. If intensity is really high, you need glycolysis. There, like that, that is just physiology, whether you can adapt for as many years as you like. Um, you're still, if the intensity is high enough, you're still going to need 
glycolysis. With high intensity exercise, you're still going to need carbohydrate as the uh, as the main fuel. Um, so, and this is why I think a di- any diet where that that is the one solution for all problems doesn't exist. A high carbohydrate diet is not a solution to all problems. Uh, a high fat diet or a keto diet is not a solution to uh, to all problems. Um, and I think if you want to uh, train your carbohydrate and your fat metabolism, uh, because I think I, I read a lot about the keto diet and metabolic flexibility, well, you're actually making your body very inflexible uh, because your body is, becomes really good at using fat, really poor at using carbohydrate. Same thing that would happen if you if you always were on a high-carb diet, you become pretty inflexible we we said earlier you become very dependent on carbohydrate so the the only way to to stay sort of metabolically flexible is to give different challenges to the body at different times and when it comes to training we find this very normal we find it very normal that we don't train the same every day and we we break up the the training as much as we can we give different stimuli and I think we should do the same with uh, with nutrition. Not uh, not every day the same. Some days high carb, some days low carb. And if you really want to get to the uh, the effects that uh, that we are talking about here, I think you have to really push this to uh, to extremes. Sometimes, not every day, but sometimes. The other one that really struck me is we've had lots of questions about breathing techniques and and focusing on your breathing and training. So we said, let's do an episode on this. And and we found a a top expert who works with some some top teams uh, to talk with him about breathing. And my takeaway that basically he said at the very end of it is, if you're aware of your breathing, it means something's wrong. Your body's really good at breathing. Just let it do it. Yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And with practice, it could be uh, a benefit to them. But I think the this particular doctor's advice was if you are feeling comfortable, why bother trying to meddle with something that evolution has made work pretty well? Here's Dr. James Hall, a researcher on breathing who was recently on the show and basically said, don't focus on it. It's been great to talk to you about um, how highly evolved the respiratory system is and what a fantastic system is when it works well. So I would suggest to athletes, if it's working well for you and you have no problems, don't tinker with it. Um, It's not going to cause you problems. Having said that, there are a number of conditions which can cause you to breathe, uh, have difficulties with your breathing. Um, And, you know, you need to think about that and make sure you get the diagnosis right. So if you think you're getting wheeze and you're getting breathlessness, think about the conditions that we've talked about, particularly exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction. Take a selfie video on your phone or get someone to do that so they can see what the wheeze is like when you take it to your coach or practitioner. And also think about times outside exercise. So make sure you avoid getting infection. Make sure you treat hay fever properly so your nose works. Make sure you've got good levels of hydration on board so your airways are nice and moist and well-conditioned. But otherwise... I would try and avoid anything else to tinker with it if it's working well for you. So another one that gets talked about a lot, and look, we have been very supportive of some really good recovery tools. Uh, you know, I think Normatec's a great tool. I think Whoop and, and 
I know Ryan has some things to say here, but uh, I think Whoop can be really good at helping you with recovery. But again, I can't remember who it was that we recently had on the show. Um, I certainly recently had Dr. Pruitt say this to me, that 80-90% of recovery is sleep. Yeah, and we had uh, Dr. Holson on here, I think, uh, during the sleep episode, and she obviously she you might yeah. say she has a bias because she's researches sleep, but she Based you could also say she's thing. she's uh, has a great understanding of the powers of sleep, and she said the exact same thing: recovery, recovery, recovery equals sleep, sleep, sleep. If you can get it, um, and there's there's a little bit more that you can do in 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 some ways, but yeah. The fundamentals, again, it comes back to the fundamentals, and sleep is is that fundamental when it comes to recovery. Yeah. Here's Dr. Shona Holson. You know, the way that I think of it, the way that I try to explain to to people and the athletes that I work with is, you know, I think of recovery as a pyramid and, you know, you've got to get the base of your pyramid right first before you add all the fancy things to the top. And I, you know, things like your sleep and, you know, um, nutrition and training, you know, that's your foundation of your pyramid. But what I see a lot of, um, a lot of athletes do and, and what a lot of people want to do is just take the, the quick, easy, simple fix um, that well often isn't really a fix. It's just, you know, something that they think is, is that they're ticking the box for doing their recovery when, and you know, if you think about it, we're supposed to spend a third of our lives asleep. Um, and, you know, that's a significant period of time in comparison to say, you know, I am an advocate for ice baths in the right setting, in the right situation. But, you know, you might be talking 15 minutes of your day um, in comparison to sleep that should be, you know, for athletes, maybe around nine hours. Um, so I think it's one of the, you know, we call them the big rocks. I think it's one of the, the key aspects. It's for most people, it's not that difficult to do. Um, it's just a matter of getting your behaviors right. And I think that focusing on that rather than focusing on the, the really small things that may have less of an impact when you don't have your sleep nailed and you're not doing that properly, I think that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. I've used Whoop also, and I mean, I love the metrics you get. You know, it's it's it gives you a lot of great information. The reports you can generate are are really helpful. But what I found is that I kept getting bad scores, and I knew I wasn't recovering well. I knew I wasn't sleeping well, and I ended up having to unplug from it because I just didn't want to see it anymore. Mm-hmm. So so. I just didn't, I just stopped wearing it for a while and, uh, you know, and really was able to just focus on really go back to the, that 95% because I said, well, I know what it's going to tell me. I know my, my <laughs> <laughs> I know my HRV is, is, you know, in the bucket right now. I know my sleep is down. So I just took it off. And then instead of having that data drive it, it was back to the basics and just say, all right, what do I need to do to get sleep? You know, and, and then got back in tune with the body and say, oh, I feel better today. Oh, I performed well on this on this workout. Things are moving in the right direction. So while the data is great, I think in some cases it's it's, you know, maybe useful to start with it, but also you have to unplug from it once in a while. And I think that that goes to the point where some people are natural experimenters. So they want to try some of these things. But I think the mistake that can be made is that they then try to force the issue. And they're like, this is going to work for me or this is going to make a difference. And they stick with it too long, even though it, your your example is a good one in that you noticed that it was actually hindering something about you or affecting your mental state. And you said, I'm going to set it, to, set it aside. It's not doing what 
it's intended to do. It's in fact hurting what it's intending to do. So I'm going to set it aside, go back to baseline, reset some things. I don't need this data. No one needs the data. It can help in certain cases, but no one needs it. So I'm going to set it aside. And that's a good lesson. But I also think this is a great example of the where's the value, the 5% or the 95%. I've had people reach out to me with the same question. So you, you even said it yourself. You're like, well, I looked at my whoop. I knew I wasn't sleeping well. I knew I wasn't recovering well. My HRV was low. It was affecting me mentally. Um, but then I'm glad you said, so I disconnected, but then I tried to get some sleep. Right. What I've seen from some of the emails I've gotten is, well, I'm not sleeping well. Uh, you know, HRV's through the floor. I'm not riding very well. What are some good recovery tools? Like, what's a good recovery mix? What are some other things I could use? Should I use this foam roller versus that foam roller? And my response tends to be the stop focusing on those 5%. Take a couple of days off the bike and, and get some sleep. It's like adding more Band-Aids to right. the issue, right? But those things are all adding up to Band-Aids upon Band-Aids upon Band-Aids. It is not fixing the underlying problem, which is to just go back to the basics. And I, I experienced that myself last week. I was actually really tired. Uh, Ryan tortured me with this 7 a.m., VO2 max workout that I wasn't ready for. And it just had me off my game for days. Mm -hmm. And I finally, I think it was Thursday after just unsuccessful ride after unsuccessful ride said, well, I've got on the plan a couple hours on the bike, or I could skip the couple hours on the bike, get my work done and get to bed early. Reset. And that's what I did and got a great night of sleep. And it made a huge difference. But I wasn't sitting there going, ooh, I haven't been doing my recovery drink mixes enough. <laughs> yeah. I got to do that. That's going to make the difference. It was like, no, I need to stop riding my bike and I need to sleep. Yeah. I think to your point of, you know, when you have that data, what do you, what's the next step? You know, I get, and you probably get these too, a lot of questions from athletes about, yeah, well, what do I, what do I do? What does this HRV metric mean and how can I change it rather than just stepping back at times? I feel like sometimes the, the you know, the athletes can dive into the data a lot more than we might, you know, where we might just say, oh yeah, just put the bike down and go to sleep. But they'll, they'll dive into this deeper and deeper and it just takes you down this rabbit hole. And, uh, I always go back to just keep it simple and bring it back and just try to figure out just that 30,000 foot view. You know, what is it? If it's recovery? Okay. Yeah. Find that thing in your lifestyle that that's going to help you achieve recovery. And yeah, if it's sleep, then let's start with that. And, and then build in those 5% things way down the road if you ever need them. But right now, focus on the big picture. I guess the question I would have to, to, to give people, try to give people some practical advice here is be, because they seem to be blinded by the data. They get sucked into it. They're trying to find a problem that maybe doesn't even exist if they, or it exists, but if they were to step back with a different lens, they'd be able to identify it. But instead, they go deeper and deeper. So how, how do you avoid that? I mean, is it sometimes it's hard to see those things? Maybe the obvious answer here is that's why you work with a coach because they can help you see that. 
Yeah, that that was the first thing that came to mind is, is you know, you have your data, you're looking at it, you're going to look at it in a certain light. But then when you can't seem to get out of that, uh, that spiral of digging deeper and deeper, then yeah, that's where you have that third person who has who's going to look at it a little bit differently. And yeah, it's, it could be a coach, a teammate, a family member. And to them, it's it's simple, you know, but <laughs> when you're looking at it, and you're so buried in the data, you might not see that. And so it takes you know, it takes that, that team essentially a new perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hesitant to bring this up. I'm certainly not going to use names, but Ryan and I were going through an email that we received from a dad of a junior athlete that was actually a little concerning to us. And this is again, that what Ryan's talking about, that focusing on the data, focusing on the 5% and not seeing the, the, the 95%. So very quickly started this email with, well, she, she's going to a very t- a tough school that's very demanding. So again, junior, so she's in high school. She's training 20 hours a week. She's, been, she's had two bad injuries in the last year, uh, which were more overuse injuries. Concussion. One was a concussion. Yeah. And, and was upset that two months later she was still feeling the effects of the concussion. And then really wanted to dive into the well, you know, what's the right type of interval work? What's the right type of intensity? What are little tricks to, to, to balance all this? And Ryan and I both read it and said, you got to back down. Push the pause button here. Let's, let's stop for a second. Right. This is too much training for both her age and for everything else she has going on in her life. 20 hours per week is insane. And there's no little tricks. There's no little 5% that's going to fix this. You have to look at this big picture of repeated injuries, struggling, fatigued. This is off course. Yeah, and and you got to wonder what is going on inside that athlete's mind too and how close she is to a, a breaking point of some kind. Right. Yeah, and they, they're not going to typically bring that up because they want to they – seem you know strong and keep pushing and and please someone out there that's putting the pressure on them yeah yeah Yeah, but i've seen it over and over with junior athletes that the timing of it you know when we would start training in the spring we would say okay as you know around spring break things change a little bit but then as they get toward the end of the school year and they have finals coming up the mentality always changed and they're they're willing to push but you can see that they're not performing so you know you have to and and with this athlete yeah being at a very challenging school it sounds like it takes even maybe more time or more mental energy to to perform at this school so this is one of those times where yeah it just makes sense to just back down you know and think about the long term where do you you know you're in high school now where do you want to be as a U23, where do you want to be when you're 24, 25? Do you still want to race bikes? Or is this just like a flash in the pan and you win junior nats now and then you burn out? I mean, you know, you have yeah, to think I mean, about that, that long term. That's such a hard thing for a person of that age. They're not equipped to make mm-hmm. those decisions. They're not thinking no. in those terms. Yeah. So the onus is on somebody else. Yep. Okay. Now the crux of the episode, the 95%. Let's talk about that, shall we? Uh, we, we, we have touched upon it in so many ways, but let's really get into it. What is the 95%? Ryan, I'll start with you. What in your mind constitutes the 95%, the bulk of what people should really focus on? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, to go back to the basics of, I mean, when I was learning this stuff in school, it was, you know, we had frequency, intensity, and timing, 
you know, are three basic things that we talked about for, for workouts. You know, how often do you do it? How long do you do it? How hard do you go? And it's so simple, but it's not <laughs> because then you try to build off of it. And I think that's where we can easily make it overly complex. But yeah, the, I mean, the, the goal, you know, for athletes is we want to apply a, a, you know, a training stress. We want to have it, you know, be an overload and then we need to recover from it. And it's, it's, you know, this basic give and take. It was interesting. You began some threads on the forum that we have, and there was a series of questions that you were asking. Essentially, they all came down to what do I wish I knew when I started out cycling. And a lot of the stuff that is in there is exactly what we're talking about because it is the fundamentals. It's hard to see it sometimes when you're first starting out. If you don't have the right coach or the right mentor or the right teammates or whoever, where you're actually learning the craft of training, learning the craft of cycling, then you might get either bogged down or distracted by all the fancy stuff and do it, quote unquote, the wrong way. But those threads really revealed a lot of interesting tips from members and uh, the coaching staff here as to what people should be focusing on. I thought yours, Trevor, was really good. It goes back to a conversation you had with your one of your mentors long ago. So I was a classic example of somebody who was looking for all those 5% at the start of my career and hearing all these things on the group rides and going, oh, I should do that and I should try that. And I, I mentioned this in that thread and then said, you know, at first I said, hearing all these stupid things on the group ride and I went, Actually, you know what? Probably what I was hearing was good stuff. I just had so little understanding of training. I probably wasn't applying it right. But the thing that made the big difference in my cycling career, in my career in general, was the day. So I think I've talked about this on the show before. My original mentor, Glenn Swan, I finally just went to him and said, you know, you, you've told me about the principles before. I've ignored you. I paid the price for that. So teach me how to train. And he said, treat me to a slice of pizza and I'll give you a, give you an hour or two. So I, I still say it's the best $3, three dollars I ever spent in my life. We, we went to the pizza place because he's a pizza fanatic. Got him two slices of pizza and, and we talked for a while. And all he did was teach me the principles of training. Didn't give me any workouts, anything like that. Didn't tell me how to map out the week. Just said, here are the principles of training. So it taught me about overload, taught me about the law of diminishing returns, taught me about a few of the other concepts. And what's more important, he had told me all this stuff before. This time, I really tried to listen and spent a whole year trying to fully understand these basic principles that he taught me. And this was over 20 years ago. And since then, I've gotten my exercise physiology degree. I've been coaching for how many years? I've, I've raced for decades. And I have learned so much since. But the core of everything I know about exercise physiology, about training, still comes down to those basic principles that he taught me over a slice of pizza. Mm-hmm. None of that has changed. That is still the core of all my understanding. It's great to hear that those principles are the foundation, like we've been saying, of, of, of everything that has come after it. It's also great to hear that pizza is still really good. No, this was 20 years. <laughs> I was waiting for you to go, wait a minute, two slices of pizza, $3? Yeah, 20 How years How old ago. are you? <laughs> 
that too. <laughs> it certainly doesn't cost that little on Pearl Street, does it? No. So our, the, our, so our to, office is above a pizza place. This gets really tough. <laughs> it's tempting. Every day it's tempting. Because pizza, I'm a fanatic too, just like Len Swan. But. So let's be very clear. The training is a big component of the 95%. Ryan mentioned the word recovery is a big component of this 95%. The other third tier or third pillar, I guess you could call it, of the 95% is Functioning gear. Functioning gear. I personally say with hesitation, but that's for Chris's benefit. Yes. If only I could tell some stories about Trevor's non-functioning gear and broken stuff that dangles from his bike occasionally. Functioning gear is that oddity for me. Every once in a while I have it. I don't know what happened (laughs) (laughs) to make it function, but it doesn't last long. (laughs) But yes, to me, the 95% is three simple things. Effective training, effective recovery functioning gear. And notice I didn't say best gear. Yep. I didn't say Fancy most gear. expensive gear. Shiny gear. Functioning gear. Yeah. You can do a lot with the the basics there too. So let's start with that first pillar, training. Ryan? Yeah, I mean I mentioned the that you know this principle earlier about that kiss, you know, the kiss approach and I learned this way back in the day when I was ski instructing and overthinking things and the more Keep it simple, stupid, stupid for for people out there that aren't familiar with the acronym. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I wasn't going to say it, but at least I, I I try not to use the last S, but we Mm -hmm. can say it. Keep keep it simple. (laughs) Swell person. Keep it simple. (laughs) Yeah. So I mentioned this principle earlier briefly, but the kiss, right? The keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) Maybe we don't. Right, use Ryan, that as much Ryan these days. is struggling with <laughs> saying even that say last. the word. Such stupid. a nice guy. <laughs> too nice. I'm not going nice. to tell you what Chris would say. <laughs> <laughs> Can't offend anybody, right? Yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> but no, keep. Well, when I first heard of this, the, when I was ski instructing and first learned of this, the the other instructors had no qualms about telling me, "Keep it simple, stupid, straightforward." Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's right. how I learned it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> But yeah, the, the goal with this is, yeah, I mean, it really is just what it says. Keep it simple. And I think it's the physiology, the, the training, everything. We can make it as complex as we want to. And I think the athletes, you know, they want to keep, you know, a lot of them want to learn. And they, they dig in deep to the data. There, there's a lot of research coming out around all sorts of training modalities and everything. But, um, you know, in the end, we need to just always keep bringing it back. So I think the forum post that you mentioned earlier was actually a good practice for all of us because when I put that out there and then immediately started thinking about, okay, what are these, what are some beginner tips that I would come up with and what are mistakes I made? It, it, it took a few minutes to really mm-hmm. think back and, and sort of reactivate that, that area of the brain and think about the things that we've been through many years ago and now we might forget. So that's, I think, yeah, as coaches, the benefit, we have to keep that in mind because that's where we can help bring people back. You know, it's easy to see all of the new, like the supplements and the equipment and everything out there that's going to help get us that 5%, but we can always remember, no, there's something more and it's, we need to step back to see it. We did. So our last summary episode was, I think, titled, The Physiology is Complex, But Keep the Training Simple, where we really talked about this, that, that yeah, when you, you know, sometimes we oversimplify the, the physiology and then overcomplexify the training. It really should be the other way around. And this is, you know, as you know, I'm a personal 
proponent of, of really simple interval work, five by five minutes, four by eight minutes. Mm-hmm. Even when I have high intensity, something like Tabata's, which is just 20 on, 10 seconds off. And some people find that over overly simple. But what I actually really enjoyed is, here's a good example of this. Last week, when we did that workout that, that Ryan set up, you know, he's, he prefaced it at the beginning with, I, I don't like this because these are kind of steady state intervals and I'm a mountain biker, but we're going to do four by four minute intervals. Mm-hmm. So it's four minutes <laughs> at, at you know above threshold. And then I think it was what, three minute recoveries, Ryan? Yep. So he did them. I did them. Dr. Chung did them. As I mentioned earlier, I was completely cooked. I had no business being on the bike, let alone doing intervals. So at the end of it, we all posted screenshots of our workouts on our discussion forum. And it re- led to this really long, really enjoyable conversation where we were looking at all the nuances. So you could look at my heart rate and really see that, yes, even though I was putting out the power, I was hitting the power that I would want to hit in these intervals, you could see by my heart rate response, I was not ready. I had no business doing these. You looked at at Ryan's, you saw a bit of a slower heart rate come up because he's more of that explosive, big FRC type guy. Um, Other people started posting and we were looking at these nuances in these intervals of, um, you know, the power was steady. You look at the power, it was pretty boring. But the nuances in heart rate and cadence to really be able to start to analyze, you know, here's where this athlete's at. Here's what they can work on. Here's how they should execute these intervals. If heart rate's slow to come up because of their aerobic system. So, for example, with me, I'm pure time trialer. We've talked about this. I'm pure aerobic. I posted intervals that I did effectively, a set of four by eights. And you can see my heart rate just comes right up to threshold, right at the beginning of the intervals, flattens out. At the end of the interval, it just comes right back down. So that's called oxygen deficit and oxygen debt. And when you have somebody who's generating most of their power aerobically, there's very little oxygen deficit, very little oxygen debt. Somebody who's much more anaerobic beast, you're going to see a lot more of that oxygen debt. Um, So we are going into all these nuances and discussions and what that means and how you can adjust these intervals uh, accordingly in this discussion. At the end of it, I had to kind of make the point of what I love about this is People have said, you know, why do you do such simple intervals? But here we had one of our best discussions about an incredibly simple interval. So we talked about four by fours and four by eights, which people think of as really boring. But had we done an interval workout of one minute at this and then 45 seconds at this and then 20 seconds at this and then four minutes at this, we couldn't have had this conversation because heart rate and power would have been all over the place. And all you could do is look at that and go, well, you went really hard. Mm hmm. But we couldn't say anything about the response. So the the thing I found fascinating that I, I mentioned at the end of this discussion was be able to do the simple intervals actually revealed all these amazing nuances about the athlete. And if we had done complex intervals, you wouldn't seen any of the nuances. Yeah, they would have. Been, it would have been hidden in all of that clutter. The the right. the simple stuff is revealing in terms of the relationship between heart rate and power. In terms of some of these other connectivities within systems and things like that. Whereas the other stuff, it's just too convoluted. Yep. So definitely, Ryan, want to hear your take on this. But when I think about the ninety-five percent of training. It's not all this amazing complexity. As a matter of fact, I've said to my athletes all the time, there's a whole lot of ways to skin the cat. 
meaning to get to your peak fitness, there's a lot of different ways to get there that all get you to about the same place. The only thing I tell them is if you try to do all of them, you end up with a very butchered cat, which is a horrible analogy. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, that 95% when you're talking about training is really simple. It's about the right balance of intensities. So that gets into the, are you polarized? Are you sweet spot? But have, have a direction. The right uh, balance of volume and rest. Is your rest proportional to the amount of time you're putting on the bike? Uh, are you executing the work effectively? So again, find the intervals that you can do really well. Again, it doesn't have to be complex. Sometimes complex is hard to execute. Uh, so you want effective execution. And then finally, the the bigger picture of timing and periodization. And even there, I keep it simple. I am not one of those coaches who gives my athlete a different workout every single day. I am much more of that. We go into a block. I go, here's the one interval workout you're doing this entire six weeks. And then the next block will we'll change. I'm not a let's change it up every single day. The word formulaic comes to mind and maybe that people are turned off by that but I feel like when done correctly having the formula is a good thing because it helps you to um, understand how how close to the target you're getting for one it also when it comes to particular workout if you're able to repeat it you can get better at doing it uh, which people might be thrown off by, but there is an art and a science component to executing intervals properly, and they have to both be dialed in for you to get the most out of that workout. If you're just doing one one week and a different thing the next week and a different thing the next week, you haven't practiced the intervals, and you won't get as much out of them potentially. So that's why I use this word formulaic, and obviously uh, you have to respond to other things in life that might throw you off that formula and adjust accordingly. But if you're able to stick to the formula and things are going according to the formula, it helps. Well, we just talked about all the nuances and something as simple as four by eight minute intervals or four by four minute intervals. So the first time you do an interval workout, there's no nuances. You're just trying to figure out how to do it. You have to do it a few times before you can get the execution down and start seeing those nuances and really get into those things that can make a a really big difference in the execution. If you are changing up the interval work you're doing every time, then you're always in that figuring out how to do the intervals and you never get to the nuances that actually do make a big difference. Yeah, I think that four by four example, it is really a fundamental thing to learn. It's a skill that you need to learn how to execute those. And, And I think your example of the workouts that are meant to be more fun, like more indoor cycling style where it's a minute here, 30 seconds there, and, and you just go hard the whole time. Uh, it, it reminds me of, of um, teaching bike skills to people too, where we, we focus heavily on those basics. And what happens is people start, they hop on the bike, maybe they don't practice how to unclip or how to corner or steer the bike very well. They don't do it at slow speeds. They just immediately jump into group rides. And what happens is all of those basic balancing skills, tipping skills of leaning the bike, those all get masked under high speed. So then we can, we can think about it this way as like learning to do something like a four by four is a critical fundamental concept that you want to do well 
well before, because then if you, if you go into say a spin class and you're all over the place, now you're masking all of those skills of learning how your body feels, learning how to pace yourself, um, with essentially just a hard effort. This to me, I've been asked this before, what is the difference between training and something like Peloton? And look, I think Peloton's great. Uh, but that is the difference. Peloton is about fitness and enjoyment. So it has a lot of those kind of fun workouts where you're changing it up all the time while somebody's encouraging you and pushing you hard and all that sort of stuff. Peloton is not designed to make competitive, strong athletes. It is designed to make you fit, make you have a really enjoyable hour and feel like you, you accomplish something, which I think is great. But and if that's all you're looking for, do Peloton, do these crazy interval workouts that are fun. If you are trying to hit your best, so this and this whole conversation is the 95% versus 5%. So this whole episode is directed towards maximizing your gains. If you are trying to maximize your gains, sticking with something that's a little more tried and true, maybe a little more boring, but that you can execute very effectively, that's the 95%. Great. Let's move on to the next pillar, recovery. Yeah, this one immediately uh, makes me think of one of our forum posts where we had a little discussion about this, and it was the comment about sometimes just putting down the Excel spreadsheet or that three-week build phase that you had and just giving the body, essentially giving the body what it needs at that time. So not, you know, being stuck to, I have to do this workout right now, or, or this is what I need to do, but it's, it's being flexible and listening to the body. So I, th- I think that that one comment that one of our members made was great because it really, I think it was a good summary point. How do you do that? <laughs> That's hard. I mean, that takes experience, it, right? It does, There's, that a, is a skill in itself of being able to listen to your body, yep. being able to pick up on the signals it's giving you, not ignore them, uh, notice them, and then know what to do with those signals, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where, I mean, we mentioned it earlier, you know, like this is where coaching comes in or having someone that has your interests, your best interests in mind. It might be, yeah, a coach, a family member, again, a friend, teammate, whatever, but, uh, you can work with that person to get their point of view. They'll be looking at things differently. And then hopefully, yeah, you can learn over time, like you're going to miss things. And that's part of getting dialed in with this 95% is there should be failure as you develop in the process, because then you can remember next time, make a different decision, you know? And, uh, and I think that ultimately gets you to help become, you know, just, just more well-rounded and, and it, listen to your body a little bit better when it comes down to the recovery piece. Yeah. And uh, we've, we've talked about this on, uh, episodes long ago when it came to the indicative nature of mood, when it comes to how well recovered you are and the things you can, you, you can take a questionnaire that'll tell you uh, what your mood is. And you can say, oh, based on that, I probably, I need more recovery or, not, or less or whatever. I think another way to do that is notice when your spouse or family member or pe- other people around you are like, man, you're really grumpy. And then you take note of that and you say, hmm, maybe that is because I haven't been getting enough sleep or I haven't been doing my recovery properly. Or I should be because this is a big block of training right now and I kind of expected to be grumpy. And when I'm done with it, that's when I'm going to recover. Would you agree with that, Trevor? Oh, absolutely. 
I have every week my athletes give me an assessment of their recovery, and I want it to be a self-assessment. I've certainly had athletes who started working with them and go, well, what, what metrics do I use for this? And I'm like, no, this is your assessment of your recovery. And I have been given feedback multiple times that this is what my athletes feel is the hardest thing to do. And it's a self-awareness thing. And I see all the time where I'll, I'll read their descriptions of the workouts through the week, and it'll be things like, started the intervals, it wasn't in the legs, I couldn't do them. Got, you know, the next day's ride, got up, legs were barely moving, but got on the bike, they started to, to get up and running, did an okay workout. The next day, really struggling this whole ride, just wasn't feeling it. And then their assessment of the recovery for the week is, oh, I'm feeling pretty recovered this week. Mm-hmm. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> You didn't have a single successful ride. You were feeling pretty lousy every ride. How's that showing that you're feeling pretty recovered? And they look back and go, oh, I didn't really notice that. Assessing where you're at, uh, how recovered you're feeling, is a really hard thing to do. And we want to fool ourselves. We always just want to tell ourselves, yeah, I'm feeling normal. And ignore the signs. And... Again, we can go into all those little one, two, and three percents for recovery. And, you know, here's the best recovery mix, and all these other things that you can do. But at the end of the day, the ninety-five percent of recovery is just be that ability to recognize, as Ryan is saying, where you are, and then adjust your training and your recovery time accordingly. When you're dragging your feet like that, going, maybe it's time to get some sleep. It's interesting to me because I feel like in the words you're you're saying based on the experiences you've had with athletes that they bring the competitive mindset to recovery. And essentially they're like I'm going to nail this recovery even if it's wrong. <laughs> just like, yep. you know, and, and that is only hurting themselves. Yep. Whereas they should just say recovery when done right is is what my body is craving and I got to give it what it's craving to maximize the training that I, that came before it. Otherwise, you know, they're kind of canceling each other out in a way. You know, actually, yes and no. They, they do bring that competitive mindset of assessing their recovery as like a, a measure of themselves and they have to give themselves a high score. Uh, where they don't bring it is in the execution Mm-hmm. So here is something that I see all the time where I will give athletes a dedicated recovery week and go, I want you taking naps. I want you stretching. I want you going to bed earlier and getting more sleep. And at the end of the week, they'll go, well, I didn't recover as much as I, I wanted to. And I go, well, how much sleep do you get? I, I couldn't get more sleep this week. I go, why? And they go, I don't have time. <laughs> and then I'll go, so for example, normally you train 12 to 13 hours per week. This week, you got four hours on the bike. So by my math, that gave you an extra nine hours. So why didn't you have time to, to rest? Why does that thing going on? Like, But if I had told you to go and do a two-hour ride... You would have found the time. You would have found the time. Right. But when I tell you to go and do an hour nap, you don't have the time. And I've had that conversation a bunch of times, and I see a lot of athletes struggle with that. It's just like, I need to train... I'll make the sacrifices to get time on the bike because I feel like that's beneficial. But 
I can't take a nap. I can't dedicate an hour to taking a nap. Yeah, that is an interesting mindset that is brought to athletics in general, I think, endurance sports specifically. Uh, Such a hard thing for people to let go of sometimes. Like if I'm not on the bike or if I'm not in the weight room or whatever, if I'm not doing something, then I'm losing something, right? right? And they just got to flip that around because only in the – relaxation and recovery process, are you actually gaining what you are trying to gain? Yep. So I actually did this a couple months ago with an an athlete who was really struggling with this, where we got to their recovery week and I said, okay, we're going to map out this week together. And I just went through, so Monday, how much time do you have to ride? Tuesday, how much time do you have to ride? So we, we put in all these rides and I said, can you do this? And they went, yeah. And then went back and went, okay, this ride for two hours on Tuesday that's now a nap. Like you could hear them hesitating. They're like, no, you just told me you had two hours on Tuesday. <laughs> I know you have the time. That's a nap. Mm-hmm. And, and you could just hear the stress coming over the phone. Of, but no, I can't do that. That's it's so interesting. I think that another major uh, topic within this recovery bucket is something that Ryan and I talked about briefly recently, which is this notion of uh, it comes down to nutrition and people. Uh, again, it's a it's I think sometimes a mindset thing where they're not adequately fueling themselves because they think that if they eat less in some way, they're going to gain more. Sometimes they have this reverse or backwards opinion on the matter, frankly. It is, it's a mindset thing. And uh, I think Trevor's example of the uh, recovery week is, is perfect because yeah, it's, you know, we do all this work and, and and particularly here, we live in in Boulder, which is a very fit town. And, you know, people are very concerned about health and wellness and, and everything like that. And I think with nutrition, we see these same hurdles come up where everyone's so focused on finding the perfect thing to eat they forget about just eating. And <laughs> right, so right, exactly. Just eat, just get, you just need energy. And, and I see it time and time again with athletes that they have low energy and all, you know, the solution is really simple. You know, it's eat more. So it's so easy. It's 95%. But then it's the same thing uh, when I talk to them on the phone or in person, I hear just like Trevor does, you can hear the stress of, you know, well, my salads, like they might have just salads all the time because they're concerned about the nutrients in the salad or or maintaining a certain energy intake so they can maintain their weight. And they have these these other things that they're interested in. But what they're missing is this huge component of actually just giving your body fuel, right? We talk about the car as an example. And I mean, there's a lot of ways we can kind of give examples of, of ourselves as athletes, but it's it's really, you have this engine that you need to fuel. And if you don't, give it what it needs and it'll stop functioning at that level. So yeah, many times it's just, just eat, you know, but it's getting past that point of, well, I can't access this or I don't have that available or I don't want to eat that. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've asked an athlete if they have ice cream at home and, and if they're, you know, if they have kids in particular, I'm like, do you guys have ice cream? And they're like, well, yeah, I'm like, good, eat ice cream, just <laughs> eat it because they won't eat certain things. And I know yeah. Trevor is probably ready to push me off the chair. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think that I don't want to speak for you, but sometimes the eating, 
the act of eating almost almost to a point almost anything is what you need to be encouraging yeah. people to do you're not actively encouraging people to just eat that all right. the time right right but sometimes it's just about calories they need some calories and and the better the calories can be the better the 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 outcome, I guess you could say, but sometimes it's just about raw calories, no matter what, and just actively encouraging people to consume. Yeah. And we have so many, you know, there's one of the things that I run into is that people are very aware of what's coming in and they'll reach this limit with the foods that they're sort of allowing themselves to eat because they're very focused on only quote unquote healthy foods. Right. And there's so many other terms that get thrown around that I won't get into now, but they really limit their options. So yeah, it is. It's just, it's really, we go through and make an assessment of like, okay, tell me what's in your fridge right now, walk over to it and tell me what's in there. Tell me what's in the pantry. And then I'll ask, I'll look at, sometimes it's just, okay, we're finding the most energy dense foods and fuels. What do you see in there? And then I'll call it out and ask if they eat that. And sometimes it's a very simple, oh no, you know, and they might have a reason for it, but then I'll encourage them. Well, let's just eat that. You know, it's pretty straightforward. I will, uh, yeah, I, uh, it's, that's a very interesting glimpse into the mindset. Again, this comes back to psychology and, and perhaps some, some hangups that people have when they enter this world and, and take it a little too far, I would say. We experienced it. I mean, we have two kids and, you know, they're small for their age, but it's, I, I heard it over and over where, you know, the doctor is like, oh yeah, they need to gain weight. Do they like ice cream? That's how many times have I heard that? If I, <laughs> if I had a nickel for every time right. I've been asked that question from a physician, I'm like, well, of course they do. And then it's funny because to, we wouldn't think of a physician as like, oh, just eat ice cream. But they that's literally what they say because they want to gain weight. They want to increase energy. So it is really that it's kind of silly, but it's that simple. It doesn't have to be ice cream, but it's got to be something to increase your energy intake. The only thing I'm going to say is, yes, if there's a healthy alternative, always favor the healthy alternative. But I do fully agree that there are times to just say what's available and eat it. And the story that always resonated with me, this was many years ago, a friend of mine, Erin Willick, this is back when she was racing professionally. Her team, right before a race, I believe, they had just flown in. There had been some issues. They, they, their plane got in late. They're all in the van trying to get to the race, and they need to stop for food. And the only thing available is a McDonald's. And half of the team refused to eat. She complained to me and said, I found that really unprofessional. And I asked her why she felt that way, and she said, look, None of us wanted McDonald's, but that was what was available. You, We have a race the next day. Skipping dinner is not going to help you with the race. You yeah. do what you got to do. You're driving in a remote area and you come across a gas station. I'm, I'm using another car analogy. And you get to the gas station and you're, you're in a – maybe you're in a Porsche but the they only have like the really low octane fuel. Are you going to just sit there in your Porsche and not put any gas in it? Or are you going to put the low quality stuff in it? Get to high quality at some point and then put the high quality stuff in it, right? Yeah. I will say when we're talking about nutrition related to recovery, that is a mistake I see people make where they're trying to find all these secret supplements, you know, Supplements are part of that 5% that I, I see take athletes 
off course more than it helps them. Mm-hmm. Where I see these athletes focusing on supplements, focusing on all these recovery mixes and everything else. And then you look at their diet and their diet is atrocious. And you just say, you could get a lot further just focusing on eating a better diet and eliminating all the supplements. All right. Do we want to move on to the third pillar? Yeah, I'll let you take this one, Chris. Functioning gear. Yes. Yeah, Trevor, Trevor, this is the one bucket where uh, our pillar where I feel like, Trevor, you don't want – you do as he says, not as he does a little bit because I can't – I can't say you take great care of your – bikes especially in the winter when your derailleur explodes in the middle of the race and you're (laughs) stuck in your 5311 it just makes the race more exciting i guess so i guess so yeah sure (laughs) um i think that functioning gear like you mentioned earlier uh is 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 a practical it's a practical term it's not the fancy stuff necessarily it's not the shiny stuff necessarily it's not the um, glitzy, sexy, newest stuff either, but it has to be functioning. It has to be working properly. Properly, It doesn't have to cost as much as, you know, a used car, a good used car to sit under you and serve its purpose well. I still remember my first year in Victoria, I arrived on a uh, $1,200 Fuji. It was the bottom of their race line of bikes. And I certainly got hell for riding on that bike. Uh, you know, why aren't you on something much better? Why aren't you something much more expensive? Now, mind you, I had bought that bike from my friend Glenn Swan, and I, I he gave me one of my favorite quotes, which was, "I said, if you had forty five hundred dollars to spend on a bike, what would you buy?" And he goes, three fifteen hundred dollar bikes." <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was like, "Okay, why is that?" And he's like, "Because you break bikes and crits." And I don't want to race on a bike that I'm worried about walking away from. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's actually a really good point. So I bought a $1,200 Fuji from him. Got made fun of for this a little bit. So I got some sponsorship the following year. And this is actually when I went and asked him about if he had 4500 because I had $4,500 in sponsorship money. So I'm like, what would you buy? And he told me that. And I went, no, I'm going to buy the really nice bike. So I bought from him a really nice Orbea. And came back. We had this hill climb that we would do about once every six weeks to kind of test where our form was. So I just like, I'm going to go out to this hill. I'm going to crush it. And it's it's about a 10-minute hill climb. And I did set my PR. Now, mind you, this was in the summer at the, the height of my fitness. Uh, I set my PR on that climb. But do you know by how much? 1.3 seconds. Close. One second. Okay. It was one second faster. So $4,500 bought me one second. So, yeah, I mean, I I was probably underdoing it on the $1,200 bike. Certainly, you show up on a $400 bike at a race, you're going to be in trouble. But you'd be surprised how quickly the extra expense is just that extra expense that that doesn't help you. And again, here's that that 5%. I have been in crits with people who are really scared to race hard because they're on an $8,000 bike and they don't want to crash it. Right. And that hurts performance. Yep. And I want to be very clear because as a lover of bikes, I have many of them and they are shiny and they're awesome. Uh, I'm not discouraging anybody. If they want to buy a really nice bike, do it. 
because sometimes that's awesome and it makes you feel yes. faster and it's a psychological boost and all that. Wouldn't certainly would never discourage somebody, but don't expect it to change performance necessarily in radical ways. They are a beautiful ride. I, I won't deny that. If you have all the money and you want a really comfortable ride, go for it. They don't make you faster. Yeah, I think that was, especially with the gear piece of it, I think that was my sort of, uh, you know, the devil's advocate moment for the 5% is, yeah, sometimes it just it's just fun to get something cool like that because it's motivating. And I mean, I've been training on road bikes now for 20 years and I just this year put carbon rims on my road bike. I've been on alloy for so long and it was one of those purchases that I definitely didn't need, mm -hmm. but it was fun and it's now it's exciting to go ride the bike, you know, and, and it looks cool and there's some motivation to it and, and you know, but, uh, but yeah, that took, you know, 19 years roughly <laughs> to get there. <laughs> yep. All right. So we've talked about training. We've talked about recovery. We've talked about functioning gear, the three pillars. Let's wrap up the episode. Let's talk about loop back to those that 5%. Talk about the hidden dangers of focusing on that because, again, people are attracted to it uh, and we're, we're, we're telling them right here and now, uh, disregard it effectively. Disregard most of that stuff. Don't let it clutter your brain. Don't let it distract from the the main focus of your training and your recovery and your gear. Why, Trevor? What are the dangers here? The dangers is this overwhelms and becomes your focus at the cost of what really makes a difference. If you want to focus on those 5%, those little marginal gains, go do a search on the web. You will not find a, a lack of them. There's always some new product, some little thing that if you use this, it's going to make all the difference. And, and, and you know, my favorite is still this drink mix. I wish I could remember the name of it that was out a long time ago that contained lactic acid because if you drink lactic acid, it's going to train your body to handle it and then you'll be able to time trial that much better. So you can keep finding all these little things, all these little claims of marginal gains. The problem is, A, it takes a lot of time to look into these things, to order them, to try them. You have to try them. You then have to see whether they are beneficial for you or not. They might. Some of them are going to hurt you. Some of them are going to have no benefits. Some might have benefits, but you have to try. And it means you're constantly adjusting what you are doing to see if this fits into your, your overall training program. This can, A, hurt you if it's not a beneficial thing for you. B, take all your time to experiment with this stuff. And we, as we said, we're all, we all work. We all have families. We only have so much mental bandwidth to commit to this. And if you're committing it to all these little marginal gain things, how much energy do you have left to focus on the big things? And that's the danger, that the 5% becomes the 95% mm -hmm. of your and, attention. Yeah. And all you have is, is a few little marginal gains at the cost of the things that are big gains. I mean, as, as coaches, I think we have to be aware of all the 5% things out there. And, and yeah, we're bombarded with them. We all are. So, and it takes energy, but yeah, that's really part of what we do is, is help to find that balance. And, and like you said, you have to test it on yourself and know that sometimes it may maybe help, it may do nothing, or it may actually hinder your performance. I think that's where, as coaches, we can really help to wade through some of that and just, if anything, 
the time that someone might be spending focusing on that 5%, we can at least help try to bring that down a little bit, help direct it. Some people enjoy doing the research, I think. And they just like looking at that stuff and, and, you know, trying to figure out if there's some hacks that they can work out. Does it matter? Nah, probably not in the big picture. But some people think it's worth acknowledging that people do enjoy that part too. But, you know, pair that up with someone who has the experience. And then I think you have a recipe to continue learning and developing without getting bogged down in the 5%. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Trevor Connor and Ryan Kohler, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.